of the universe who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to immerse ourselves in words of Torah. Uh, this still, if you remember when I defined what Torah was at the beginning of the last unit, I said that by extension pretty much all of Jewish scripture, all of Hebrew scripture is, can be considered in an extended sense Torah, divine instruction. Uh, before you take too many more pictures of me, uh, just remember I have the perfect face for radio. <laughs> I just want, I, I, I don't want to crack your lens. Okay. <laughs> um, if I had a difficult task trying to present Torah in five sessions, even with Rabbi Spitzer's help, what we have over the next two weeks is truly a mission impossible. Um, I call this from conquest to exile, and we are covering a lot of material, so we're going to have to basically fly. You're going to get basically a bird's eye view of all of this material. Okay, what are we talking about in terms of the material we'll be looking at for the next two weeks. We are looking at the books of Joshua, Judges, thank you Judge, uh, Samuel, and Kings. Now you'll notice I said Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings without the first and second. The division of Samuel and Kings each into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings is later. At the time these scriptures were received by the Jewish community in the restored land of Israel, they were considered to be one book each. Now there are two terms for the material we are considering. The first, the Hebrew term is Nevi'im Rishonim, which means the earlier prophets. Okay, or the first prophets, or the former prophets. Okay, a brief, brief history of how this came about. If you remember, we started off in the first session on Torah with that marvelous reading, sometimes known as the Babylonian Telephone Directory, when the priest and scribe Ezra stood with a whole lot of people with unpronounceable names around him, and from dawn until noon read the entire Torah to the, pe to the people gathered opposite the water gate in Jerusalem, and it was accepted by them as Torah, as divine teaching, as in effect their constitution. That was the Torah, the five books of Moses, Bereshit, um, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, and Devarim. And that was the first, uh, a good half a day, and he must have been going fast. Even so, the people got the gist of it because they broke down in tears. Okay, now, the important point uh, is that at that point, that was about 444 BCE, that was the first portion of the Hebrew scriptures to be more or less accepted as scripture. Now we are talking about the second stage in the formation of the Hebrew Bible. And that happened sometime around the year 200 BCE. Okay. Is that the right one? Okay. Around the year 200 BCE, the writings that came to be known as Nevi'im, the prophets, were accepted in pretty much the form we have them today, in two groups of four books each. The four books of the Nevi'im Rishonim, the earlier prophets, were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The four books of the later prophets, oh, I know why I wasn't writing, because I had the right one up here. 
Okay. The four books of the later prophets were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Around the year 190, Ben Sirah, who wrote a book in the Deuterocanonicals called Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, referred to the Twelve as a single book. And the Twelve are, anybody care to name all Twelve of the Twelve? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay? Which are sometimes called the minor prophets only because they apparently wrote less than the big three. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, quick question. What's missing from that list? It's not considered by Jewish people to be prophetic. It is in the Ketuvim. Good point. Also not included in that would be Lamentations, which even though by tradition is ascribed to Jeremiah, is also part of Ketuvim. Okay. But these four books that we'll be looking at for the next two weeks are known as the Nevi'im Rishonim. Now, why are they considered Nevi'im, prophets? Because it doesn't seem to fit in the same literary category as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. After all, those contain the words of the prophets. Well, in a sense, so do these books. Okay, first of all, it is full of stories about and some words of the prophets. Some of the major prophets definitely show up in Nevi'im Rishonim, particularly Isaiah. Um, the other thing is that it provides the historical context for the later prophets. Okay, You can't really understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or the Twelve without the first understanding the context set by the Nevi'im Rishonim, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. It gives you the important reference, okay? Now there is another name for this in scholarly terms, which I've written on the board and I expect all of you to be able to pronounce without slip of the tongue, the Deuteronomistic history. The Deuteronomistic history. Okay. Anybody have any trouble with that term? First of all, where did it come from? Okay. Obviously, it has to do with the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew, Devarim. And if you remember, I think I did cover the point that in a very real sense, the core of the Torah is the story of the exodus from Egypt, the covenant at Sinai, the wandering in the wilderness, which you find in Exodus through Numbers. Okay. Then the, the uh, patriarchal narratives were added as a kind of a prologue to that, and then the primordial history as a kind of foreword. Okay, Genesis 1 through 11. Deuteronomy is added as a kind of an epilogue. The word Deuteronomy is Greek. It comes from when the Greek uh, Bible started to translate into Greek. And it comes from meaning second giving of the law. It's like, it's sometimes called in Hebrew, Mishnah Torah, the second Torah. And it's as if it was given sort of separately from the rest of the Torah. It consists almost entirely of a very lengthy discourse 
that Moses gave as the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land, telling them, in a sense, reviewing commandments and so on and so forth and how things should be set up. Now, a little bit of background would not hurt as to how this came about and why it is called. First of all, when I, was, when I went in my previous incarnation as, an, as, a, uh, as, a, as a Christian, um, and when I went to seminary at the University of the South, I ate in the dining hall, I got to know fairly well a lovely young undergraduate student who was of all things a classics major. I went to the University of the South. They still had such anachronistic things as classics majors when I went to seminary there. So it's an absolutely, it's a very traditional type school in many ways. And I absolutely offended her when I said, well, the only date in classical history that I remember is 332 BCE. And she said, what happened then? And I said, Alexander the Great conquered the Holy Land, conquered Judea. She says, that's the only date in classical history you remember? I said, yeah, it's the only one that affected me. Uh, Alexander the Great conquers the land of Judea. This is critically important in the history of the religion of Israel and, the, and Judea because this is the point at which for the first time in their lives the Jewish people encountered a European culture. It is the first time they encountered a European culture. It is the first time that they encountered an Indo-European language. And so that is also very crucial. And as a result, the Jewish people in many parts of their, both their diaspora and in the land of Judea came under Greek rule. And at first, the land of Judea was under the relatively benign rule of the Ptolemies, who were very tolerant. Uh, they were the successors in Egypt and at first in Judea, and they were very tolerant and accepting of the Jewish people. A large number of Jewish people, there had been a Jewish settlement during the Babylonian exile, believe it or not, that formed a garrison at Elephantine on the uh, first cataract of the Nile River. And... Uh, but at any rate, uh, a large number of Jews settled particularly in the city of Alexandria. And so Ptolemy, the Ptolemies commissioned the Jewish people and because a lot of the Jewish community only spoke Greek and did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. They commissioned them to do a translation of the Torah into Greek. This happened about 250 BCE. What am I doing? I can't write this morning. I'm lucky I can talk. More tea. I haven't had enough caffeine. I haven't evolved sufficiently. This gave rise to what is called the Septuagint, the version of the 70, from the Greek word for 70, Septuaginta. Actually, there were 72, according to legend, this is what happened. 72 Jewish sages who knew both Hebrew and Greek were sequestered in separate rooms to translate the Torah from Hebrew into Greek, and they all came up with the identical translation. This is what we call in Yiddish a bubamaisa, a grandmother's tale. Didn't happen that way. I'm surprised that even one of them would have been able to come up with a single translate. On the other one hand this, on the other hand that, you know. Okay. But in any event, that became the go-to text of the Torah for the Greek-speaking Jews in Ptolemaic Egypt. Okay. About the 2nd century BCE on, the rest of Tanakh, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures began to be translated. Remember, 
we basically canonize the prophetic portion about the year 200. Okay, so they began translating the other books. But they also translated some books into Greek which are not part of the Hebrew canon. And they also organized it differently. And so the books we're looking at, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, were grouped with books like Esther, Ruth, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And it's out of that Septuagint organization of the canon that we get the way in which our Bibles, what, where would you look for them in your Bible? Under what category? Wake up, people. What kind of books? No. Historical books. Historical books. Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and Kings, in effect, by being translated from Hebrew into Greek, move from being prophetic works to being historical works which just goes to prove the truth of an old saying I learned in a, from, a ta- from a guy who knew some Italian. Tradutore traditore, which means the translator is a traitor. Okay, so from that point on, you begin to get the translation of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures into what came to be known as the Septuagint Bible. Okay, now I want to do a quick sidebar because we didn't cover this material under Torah, but I think that this is a good place to sort of take a bit of a digression and consider the career of one of the most important Jews in the history of Greek-speaking Jewish community of Egypt, Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria, okay, whose years are about 20 BCE to, let's see, where have I got him? Yeah, 40 CE. Okay, that made him roughly a contemporary of Jesus. Oh, although he lived a little longer than Jesus did, probably. Okay, but roughly a contemporary of Jesus. Philo of Alexandria was a great scholar who knew the Septuagint Bible backward, forward, inside out. He was also a Neoplatonic philosopher. And he was someone who very deeply loved and knew Greek philosophy and he was very concerned to try how do you get these two thought worlds together because they are completely different thought worlds and he came up with a very significant tool in the history of biblical interpretation allegorical interpretation of scripture allegorical interpretation of scripture Now, this enabled him, in effect, to reinterpret the Bible in Platonic terms, uh, which is no mean feat. Now, Philo's influence on the world of Judaism was virtually nil. The fact of the matter is that Greek culture only made a superficial impact on Jewish and Israelite culture. But his influence on Christianity would be enormous. And that would be through two main figures. Clement of Alexandria, who uh, around the second century of the Common Era founded a catechetical school in Alexandria and carried on Philo's method of allegorical interpretation. And then, I'm afraid I'm going to have to probably, I'm running out of room up here. Um, 
but these are terms I definitely wanted to put up. Probably the key figure uh, was Clement's successor at the catechetical school, Origen. Okay. And Origen, his years, let's see. Da, 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 I've got that somewhere. Da, 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 da. Okay. Yeah, 180, about 185 to 254. Okay. Origen talked about three different modes of interpretation of Scripture using that allegorical method. He talked about flesh. He talked about, I'm going to have to bring my notes with me. Soul. and spirit. Now that's very close to the Jewish division into Peshat, the straightforward spread out meaning of, of Scripture, the Midrash, the sought out meaning of Scripture, and sold the secret meaning of Scripture, the mystical interpretation of Scripture. But it is slightly different, and it gave rise, and the subsequent Christian modes of interpretation took this and ran with it. And they came up with four, let's see if I need my notes, four different terms, and I'm going to write them up here in case you want to come and get them later, okay? Historical. Historical interpretation of Scripture is pretty much what we know as literal. Allegorical. This is Christological. soteriological, that is with salvation history. Tropological, that's ethical, moral, And finally, anagogical. Which is having to do with last things. So biblical scholars would say anagogical is eschatological interpretation of scripture. And that ruled the roost in Christendom pretty much up until the end of the Middle Ages. Until largely on the eve of the Reformation, and especially in the Reformation, everything except historical interpretation of Scripture was scrapped. This is known as throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Because a whole rich realm of biblical interpretation was lost from the Christian world pretty much until the postmodern era. It was this kind of allegorical interpretation of Scripture that gave rise to the fact how many people here would care to know, or can anyone tell me, what the single most, the book that received the most commentary in the Middle Ages from Christian commentators in the entire Bible was? What? And what? Not Revelation. 
you'll never guess. The Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. More commentary was written on that than any other book in the Bible during the Middle Ages. Why? If you take a strictly historical approach to the Song of Solomon, what is it? It's some of the world's really great erotic poetry. Okay, and you say, what in the name of wonder is that doing in the Bible? Well, they said it's an allegory of the love between Christ and the soul. Just as the Jewish people understood it as an allegory of the, lo of the love between God and Israel. Okay? So, that sort of just by way of sidebar. So, I don't know whether to leave that up or go back to the other. I think we need to go back to the other side. Yes. Enough of the dark side. Okay, no, never mind. Uh, so what is Deuteronomistic about these books? First of all, first of all, take a look. We're finally going to get to looking at a biblical text. At 2 Kings 22, 8 through 13. 2 Kings 22, 8 through 13. Would anyone care to read? The high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Shaphan, Shaphan. The secretary informed the king, The priest Hilkiah has given me a book. Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the God that is kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Okay. First of all, a few, again, key terms. Shaphan was not the secretary. He was a scribe. Scribe. A sofer. Secondly, instead of book, read scroll. It was a scroll that they found. Third, just as a footnote, if you read on in 2 Kings, you'll notice that the prophet that they went to consult in order to inquire of the Lord was a woman, Huldah, the prophetess. Okay. Now, you'll notice that the reaction, Josiah was deeply alarmed. What followed was an extraordinary reform throughout the land of Judea that was carried out by force under Josiah's and what the basic target was that they eliminated all worship of God outside of Jerusalem. All worship of God outside of Jerusalem. They took out what were called the high places, the bamot, the hilltop altars. Now, are we talking about pagan altars to foreign gods that were being eliminated here? 
The answer is no. These were your local family and clan shrines offered where worship was offered to the God of Israel. Of course, they also thought he had a wife named Asherah. Never mind that. The fact of the matter is, it was a total, forcible centralization of the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem, which was being repaired. Now, the character of that Reformation has led scholars to conclude that the scroll that was found in the temple as they were repairing it was the scroll of Deuteronomy, of Devarim. Why? Because that's one of the hallmarks of the commandments in Devarim was a complete ban on any worship outside of the place on which God would choose to rest his name, i.e. Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, if you look after the Decalogue in the book of Shemot, in the book of Exodus, in what is called the Covenant Code, it contains brief instructions on how to construct your family and clan altar. Do it of rammed earth. And if you do it of stones, make sure that you have used no iron tool to shape the stones. Okay? Now why would Exodus say, build your family clan altar, and Deuteronomy say, don't you dare do that? The rabbis, who can't see any contradiction in anything, even when they disagree with themselves, basically said that the book of Exodus was talking about the early period of conquest and settlement before a central place of worship had been established. Deuteronomy is prescribing for after that when an established place centralized for the worship of, 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 his, of God was done. However, and here this is, this is a little bit important. I know this is a little bit of a digression, but I really do have to say it. The greatest biblical scholar in the Jewish world in the 20th century was a professor at Hebrew University named Yechezkel Kaufman, who wrote a massive 20-volume history of the religion of Israel in Hebrew. Okay. Now, that means that Yechezkel Kaufman is not very well known outside of the Jewish world in terms of biblical scholarship. There have been translations of excerpts from that that were done by people who basically must have been sitting down with Kaufman's text in one hand and the biggest unabridged dictionary they could find in the other. And uh, I can't remember, but it's something like the religion of Israel from its beginnings to the Babylonian exile. But one of the things that Kaufman pointed out is that when you look at the entire prophetic diatribe against idolatry, there is not one thing in it that is reflective of an attack on pagan mythology. It's as if paganism is understood simply to be the fetishistic worship of gold, silver, wood, and stone. Physical objects. Why is that? He says, because the essence of Israelite idolatry was not the worship of foreign gods except as adopting some of their practices. But there was never an adaptation of foreign mythology by the Israelites. What it was is worship of the God of Israel in ways that the God of Israel had not commanded. How many of you, there's a marvelous incident from the book of Leviticus where sons of Aaron decided that, well, offering incense to Yahweh is a really great thing. Let's go ahead and do some. They may have been a little bit drunk at the time because they were eating their consecration sacrifice, which included a drink offering. And they got up and they offered zar ash zar strange fire. In other words, that had not been commanded before God. And the offering was accepted rather spectacularly because a fire went forth from God and not only consumed the incense, but consumed Nadab and Abihu as well. 
This took place, you know, in the book of Leviticus, and the whole point of the story is don't come before Yahweh to offer worship in any other way than that prescribed in the Torah. Because to do so is idolatry. In other words, idolatry was really cultic heterodoxy, if I can use a few crazy words here. It was unlicensed modes of worship of the God of Israel. That's an extremely important point to understand. That's an extremely important point to understand. Okay? Now, so that is one thing that is characteristic of Deuteronomy. And why that is important to what we're talking about here is not just the fact that that discovery of a scroll, and by the way, that's the first time that a scroll of any kind is ever mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's all during the late kingship period, not long before it all went terribly wrong. Okay. Rigorous suppression of the high places, and it reflects the teaching of Devarim. And this is held up. Josiah's reform, which unfortunately turned out to be a little too little too late, uh, is held up as the ideal by the book of Kings. So this is one thing that's deuteronomistic about it. The main thing, though, that is deuteronomistic about Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings is that it takes the theology of Deuteronomy and makes it the fundamental principle for understanding Israel's history. It takes the theology of Deuteronomy and turns it into the basic principle for understanding Israel's history. Now, when were the prophetic books canonized? About 200 BCE. That's after the return from the Babylonian exile. What happened with the Babylonian exile? Two things happened, very crucially. One, the Israelites lost their fundamental cultural underpinnings that were embodied in the institutions of kingship, priesthood, and the prophetic guilds. And so a new band of, of leaders called the scribes, the Sophrim, said, we better start writing all this stuff down or we're going to lose it completely. But the second thing that absolutely is fascinating that happened in the Babylonian exile is that the whole problem of Israelite idolatry disappeared. When you look at post-exilic prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, there is not a word of reproof against Israel for idolatry. Not a word. Which sounds counterintuitive. This is another of Kaufman's points. The reason is that idolatry, again, was not the adoption of foreign religion but of unauthorized religious practices. What happened in the Babylonian exile? First of all, there was no sacrifice going on at all. Okay, they, But the second thing is they got a chance to see what the gods of the world, the gods of other nations were like up close, and they didn't like what they saw. They really didn't like what they saw. And so everything changed in terms of Israel's religious life. Yeah. Okay. High places. High places. The idea that you had as, say, you know, if you had a, a hilltop in your family or clan territory, you would go up to that hilltop and construct an altar and worship God there instead of going to Jerusalem. The archetypal sin of the northern kings, which we might get to next week, was the setting up of sanctuaries at Bethel and Dan at the extreme ends of the Israelite kingship's territory. 
in order to keep people from going up to Jerusalem. In other words, that's the cardinal point of you know, what is outlawed in terms of idolatry of unauthorized practices, even though it can be found in the book of Exodus. And that's why they say, no, that was then, this is now. Okay, that was during the conquest and settlement. The other was a fairly common practices. They felt, you know, well, the God of Israel, we see him as male. Surely he must have a consort. So you borrowed from your local Canaanite sanctuary an image of the goddess Asherah, set it up next to your altar, and said, that's God's wife. Okay, there was no adaptation of Canaanite mythology. It was just, you know, we don't want God to be lonely. So we'll give him a consort. You see, that is exactly how it came to be done. The one place, and we'll get into this next week, where you really had full-blown paganism imported, which created a major crisis in the northern kingdom of Israel, was the importation under a wonderful woman named Jezebel of the Canaanite cult of Baal. The Canaanite cult of Baal. And I hope I can remember, I can actually bring a Baal and an Ashtoreth next week to show you what we're talking about. Um, okay. Now, I want you to look at a very important passage in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 13 to 21. Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. Now, one of the main reasons why this is so important is that for traditional Jews, this forms the second part of the Shema. The first part is, Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, etc. That's the first paragraph. That's Devarim 6. That's Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 11, you have the second paragraph, and it's verses 13 to 21. Someone got that? If not, I will have to read it, and I might just read it in Hebrew. Okay. Oh, you, you hold, okay. Uh, chapter 11, verse 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Okay. Okay. Now, what is being commanded here? What is being commanded here? Follow the commandments. Do them. Obey the commandments. Fulfill your covenant obligations as the people of God. And if you do so, what's going to result? 
prosperity, security, plenty, and you'll enjoy the land. Okay. On the other hand, if you turn aside from the covenant and, God forbid, worship other gods, what's going to be the consequence? Just the opposite. Famine, okay, and loss of tenure of the land. This is crucial, okay. And to really drive home the point we're getting at, I'm gonna, we're going to turn to another passage in Deuteronomy in just a moment. But what I wanted to basically bring about here, you know, bring out here, is that Israel's tenure, prosperity, and security in the land of Israel are contingent on their fidelity to the covenant. Israel's tenure, prosperity, and security in the land of Israel are contingent on her fidelity to the covenant. Now, put yourself in the place of the leaders of the Jewish community in the Babylonian exile, looking back and trying to understand this horrendous national catastrophe. How do you think they're going to understand why it happened. They weren't faithful to the covenant, and therefore they lost the land. The consequence was exile. And later on in the book of Devarim, there are lengthy blessings and curses which include, if you're completely unfaithful to covenant, what's going to happen? You're going to get exiled from the land and dispersed among the nations. Okay, turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we're going to look at two passages. I'd like someone to read me verses 1 through 10, and someone to read me 15 through 30. So Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10. Deuteronomy 30, 1 okay. through 10. Okay, this is 1 through 10. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart whenever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where he get scattered you. Sorry, Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart, and with all your soul, and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate okay. and persecute you. Okay. Okay, stop there, and then someone else, verses 15 to 30. Sure. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will, live and not, you will not live long in the land, and you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I will, am I still reading? <laughs> this day I will call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you and have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live 
and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so again, what is the basic theology that is being put forward here? On what is Israel's dwelling, prosperity, safety, security in the land of Israel contingent on? Obedience to the covenant, faithfulness to the covenant. What's the consequence of disobedience? Exile. Exile. Now, what happens if during the exile they repent? What's going to be the consequence of their repentance? Restoration, ingathering of exiles. Okay. This gives law. Uh, Rabbi Spitzer has sometimes said that if you look at the master stories of Judaism, there are three that are absolutely crucial to understanding Judaism. One is the exodus from Egypt. The second is the, the assembly at Sinai, Ma'amad Har Sinai, and the receiving of the Torah. And the third is the story of exile and return. Exile and return. This is very crucial. Now, how'd it go? How did Israel do? What I'd lead you to do is now to look at the book of Judges, Shoftim, and we're going to look at chapter 2. And this takes place after Joshua renews the covenants with the tribes after the conquest. Okay, we're looking at 2, this is a lengthy section, verses 6 through 23. Joshua 2, 6 through 23. Okay, yes, he does. In other words, and the presence of Israel in the land of Israel is for what purpose? To be a light to the nations, to show what a God-centered commonwealth looks like. Tell that one to Sheba, to the queen of Sheba who came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. The fact of the matter is, it would have succeeded if they'd been faithful. Okay? Yeah. What happened in 1948? They came back. That's right. That's another story altogether. However, there is something that's really extraordinary that you need to pay attention to. The rabbis say that the exile from, Ju from Judea to Babylon was because of the sins of bloodshed, sexual immorality, and idolatry. Seventy years that exile lasted. Those were not the sins of the, of the generation that lost the second temple and its second diaspora. What was the sin that caused the destruction of the second temple? Causeless hatred and factionalism. So what is the punishment for causeless hatred and factionalism? Not 70 years of exile, 2,000. Which does God hold in higher esteem? Okay. 
All right. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timath Harris, at the hill of uh, the country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord and the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asthorian. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. As he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people turned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore... The Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any nations of Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Okay, now what this does is this passage in the book of Judges is setting up for the entire body of writings we're looking at, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, an understanding of Israelite and Judean history that is cyclical, cyclical, and the cycles of Israelite history are basically five stages. A brief fidelity, this is followed by apostasy, This results in oppression. This is followed by an outcry by the people. And this is followed by deliverance by God. But the deliverance is temporary, as is the fidelity. Okay? This is the cycle that takes place over and over and over and over again in Israelite history until things get so bad that the only alternative is exile. Now, what is missing from all of these? A brief fidelity, apostasy, oppression, outcry, deliverance. What's missing? Repentance, exactly. 
And that's why, in the end, the exile is necessary. Now, what's crucial to understand is that this is the perspective on history, on Israelite history, not only from which these four books are written, but also the perspective on history that is the background for all of the Nevi'im, all of the prophetic writings. This is what they're all based upon. Okay, so this is an important concept. Now, we've come to the end of our time and we've hardly even looked at any of the contents of these books. So what I want to basically say is, I know I've only got one more session to do this in, so let me stand on one foot. There are two main narratives in this Nevi'im Rishonim collection in the Deuteronomistic history that are the overarching narratives of this section of Tanakh. They are the rise and fall of Israel's kingship. The rise and fall of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Okay? And the second is the emergence of the prophets. The emergence of the prophets. And that's what we'll look at next week. Okay? Thank you.